everybody. This is John Petrucci from Dream Theater. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, what's happening? This is Phil with Machine Head, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Yeah! Hi, this is Dweezil Zappa, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 213 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best hard rock, heavy metal, blues, and rock talk on the internet. Episode 213, we're joined by three uh, pretty cool guests we have joining us. Uh, son of the late Frank Zappa, Dweezil Zappa, who uh, I think a lot of us from the 80s remember My Guitar Wants to Kill Your Mama. The video he did for that was really cool and a killer rendition of You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch over the years but uh as of late Dweezil has been doing a, a project to pay tribute to his uh, father zappa plays zappa uh they will be in town in pittsburgh to do the carnegie library music hall of homestead uh in, down in munhall down by the waterfront on september 4th that tour is going uh all over the place so if you're in the sound of my voice being on the lookout for that so sean was able to sit down and have a chat with Dweezil zappa about the project pretty long conversation and some really cool insight from Dweezil, so we'll get to that in just a second also joining us a band that was in town and have been on the road and making quite a stir uh in the rock and jazz community even uh fusion the aristocrats uh who uh did a killer show at the hard rock cafe uh, we were able to speak to Brian Beller just before them coming to do that show, so we're going to get to that interview in just a little bit. We're also going to introduce you to a really cool guitar player named Patrick DeCoste, so we'll get to that in a little bit as well. So without further ado, Mr. Dweezil Zappa. And I say welcome to the show. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in with us today. We have a very special guest. We've got Dweezil Zappa. How are you doing today, Dweezil? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about today. I, you know, first off, you know, let's talk a little bit about Zappa played Zappa. Um, you guys are getting ready to hit the road again coming up this fall uh, in support of the uh, 40th anniversary of the uh, the, the Roxy and Elsewhere album. Um, can you talk a little bit about that this upcoming tour? Yeah, it's going to be. A celebration of that record. Um, we have a lot of things that seem to be leading us towards that anyway, because um, this year Gibson Guitars made a Frank Zappa model SG that's based on the Roxy uh, right. guitar. It's well that particular SG he played during that the the period of the Roxy and apostrophe overnight sensation, and so the guitar is a a great visual representation of that era, and because the Roxy and Elsewhere um, is 40 years old this year, you know the the whole idea of celebrating all of that stuff seemed to just come together naturally around this guitar. Right. And uh, the record itself is is a fan favorite anyway because it's got a lot of um, some of the the grooviest tunes on there, Pygmy Twilight and, um, you know, Village of the Sun, right. things like Echidna's Arf and uh, the very twisted, uh, don't you ever watch that thing? Right. All those tunes are, are great representations of um, Frank's signature sound, um, but probably the hardest song on the record, which we have uh, yet to ever play and we're in the process of getting ready to learn is uh, the bebop tango right right so like this tour would this be because i know you guys are releasing the dvd of, of the original show this year and then re-releasing like the double live album um is this going to be the album that we've known that's been released before or is this going to pull from some of the, the newer songs too of the double album the 
the version that we're going to play on the road is the actual playlist from the well-known Roxy and Elsewhere. Right. Yeah, so we will play that whole record top to bottom, um, as well as probably over an hour of other material uh, from Frank's catalog. Very cool, very cool. Now, you've been doing this Apple Place Atlas for, you know, about six, seven years now, since 2006. How did the idea of doing this come about? Well, it really came about because anytime I was talking to anybody who was under 40, mm-hmm. it seemed that they didn't know anything about my dad's music and sometimes the name didn't even ring a bell so i just thought that um his contributions to music were great enough that uh an effort needed to be made to reintroduce his music not only to his core fan base but uh to a whole new audience right because i think that his music is mostly misunderstood in terms of what has been exposed in a broader sense, you know, so for example, if the only songs that you've ever heard are Valley Girl and Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, you wouldn't have a very clear understanding of what the totality of Frank's musical output was, you know, you'd be skewed towards thinking it was just um, comedy or novelty music, which is kind of what he gets put into a category of. But if you really take into consideration some of these other songs that we're talking about, even from the Roxy and elsewhere, songs right. like Don't You Ever Watch That Thing or Kid Nazar for Bebop Tango, these songs are not messing around. These are serious compositions oh, yeah. that have, you know, very complex and sophisticated um, ideas in them, and they're extremely challenging to to play and execute. Um, and that's you know, what kind of challenges have you guys faced? Like you know, putting a band together too that can handle playing like a lot of this music. Uh, how much rehearsal time do you do you do you go leading up to like a tour, and and how do you pick the musicians you're going to be working with? Um, in the beginning, when I put the whole band together, it was an unknown factor of how much rehearsal would be needed, right. and. Um, one of the key things I wanted to do was put a band together that was comprised of musicians that had uh, no formal affiliation with Frank's music um, mm-hmm. because uh, one of the the key items that sort of also becomes confusing to the, the public if they don't do some research on it is there there seems to be this opinion that uh, the only way to perform Frank's music is if it is including former alumni. Right. Um, and that's not really the case, especially if you were going to plan to have the music exist into the future. Um, you need to have younger generations pick up on it and be inspired by it and want to learn it and play it. Right. So I wanted to make sure that I put a band together that had its own merit that was playing the music on on a level that is commensurate with the the catalog. So it was a challenge to find people with the right attitude. There are a lot of people out there who might possess the skill, but you have to have the combination of skill and attitude, you know, something where you can get along with people um, over a period of time. And, uh, you know, my dad had many different versions of his bands because people were in and out, revolving door style, and that really comes down to personal politics and behavior and stuff like that. So uh, that's one of the key issues that you, you run into with uh, people who have the requisite skill, you know, sometimes don't possess the people skills. Right, right. Now you've got like some of the, you know, original musicians coming back and guesting like throughout the tours too, right? Uh, we have had in the past, but it was never really a primary focus. Right. For me, I wanted to actually focus on um the the core band because I again I wanted people to be able to not look at it uh in terms of you know, one of the issues that the music faces is that it is relegated to a, uh, you know, some type of 
other thought uh, to the music where they, they think that it's just nostalgia music. It's, mm-hmm. it's from another era. Instead of taking it at face value, if you've never heard it before, the music itself can apply to any time period. It's, exactly. it's uh, besides uh, being contemporary, it, some of it is still so far advanced that it's really from the future. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree with you there. I know um, it, when you're when you're doing this stuff live, I mean, how are you trying to recreate Frank's original sound or using any of his original gear? Or is I, mean, I have done that where I've used his original gear. Um, but it's a bit of a challenge to do that because the gear is old and temperamental. Right. And right. Uh, so, you know, I've had some gear failure issues with with that. So um, there's fortunately a, a newer technology that's more reliable that can emulate many of those older sounds and ultimately give me a lot more flexibility. Right. Um, and that's the Fractal Axe Effects guitar system. Uh, okay. So I've been using that for a while, and that really has done a lot to allow me to recreate sounds from records uh, pretty much spot on. Right. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that we do is we take into consideration the character of the sound of the records, and we try to recreate the same timbre of instrumentation and the same... Uh, character of the sound of the records in the live presentation because we want to be able to transport the audience in, uh, you know, almost a time machine fashion. Um, it's, it's not our goal to take the music and modernize it and make it sound like it's from today. Right. Some people would say, oh, well, that's the way to capture the new audience. But, you know, my argument to that is that you don't have orchestras playing Mozart and Beethoven and things that have been around for hundreds of years, uh, they're, they're trying to carry that tradition forward and, and, and maintain what the notes on the paper dictate. You right. know? So you don't have situations where uh, a conductor or an orchestra decide to completely reinterpret it and, and say, oh, the only way to get an audience is to modernize it. So... Not you know, you don't have some jackass out there going, yeah, yeah, Beethoven, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. you don't need that. But you you run into that with a modern approach to to music that's considered nostalgia music. You always, somebody always says, oh, you need to do a rap version because that, you know, indicates that that's modern, you know. Right, so right. It's uh, unnecessary. Now, how yeah. hard was it for you to like learn the catalog? Because I mean, did he, did Frank have all his music written down, or are you just trying to pick it up by ear? Or? It's a combination of a lot of things right. for the band to learn the music. Um, when it gets to the really difficult uh, pieces, the classical pieces, and some of those we've tackled over the years, like G Spot Tornado mm-hmm. and Dog Meat, Dog Breath Variations, um, those ones have. Uh, orchestral scores that we can uh, actually look at and it makes uh, creating the arrangement for the band easier in that case. But then there are other great tunes like um, Big Swifty and and other things where uh, we don't have accurate charts. So in the cases where we want to have uh, we want to perform the, the tune and make sure that we're playing everything note for note we'll actually pull out the master tapes right. and uh, we'll go and transcribe note for note from the recordings. Uh, and that's an advantage that we have, obviously, when we learn the music versus somebody else who's trying to transcribe just from a stereo mix. Right, right. Um, so, you know, in the cases where we can't transcribe everything from a stereo mix and we do not have proper documentation, you know, or notation, we will... Pull out the master tapes. Cool, cool, very. Uh, that's very cool. Um, now, Frank's got you know a vast library of material. How do you guys go about choosing the set list? Now, obviously, you know events like you know the 40th anniversary of Roxy and elsewhere can help with that. But you know, I know you guys recently, you know, the last tour you were doing apostrophe in its entirety. I mean, how do you pick which songs you guys are going to tackle? Um, it's really just uh, kind of what 
feels inspiring to play. Uh, we always learn new material for each tour. Um, but we have to keep in mind that to balance that, there is a certain amount of anticipation from the fan base right. that want to come and see certain songs. Uh, and so we try to rotate some things that, you know, we know are, are kind of fan favorites and, and have them on hand. Sometimes we'll even ask the audience uh, what they would like to hear and give them a choice between yeah. a couple of songs. But um, generally speaking, the, the so-called or quote-unquote hits, so, certain songs like, uh, you know, Montana and Cosmic Debris and Stinkfoot and uh, things that generally are are pretty familiar those things are always lurking so right. we can play those you know zombie wolf and uh but one of the other things is that we do try to uh purposely steer clear of some of the the ones that traditionally would be considered you know radio hits right. um uh like songs like Bobby Brown people ask about that one all the time we've played it before but uh we uh we tend to want to focus on the songs that um, seem to be underappreciated. Right. So that's that's one of the, the, the key things is, you know, occasionally we did one tour where we played uh, almost the whole set was deep album cuts that many people were not familiar with, but right. the point was to give them a chance to hear those songs. Exactly. And I mean, I know like for me, because, you know, I wasn't, you know, really old enough to appreciate Frank's music when it was first coming out, and I, you know, over the you know last you know ten, fifteen years or so, I've, I've gained like a, a greater respect and understanding of his music, and it's great for me to you know see you guys perform this live and stuff that you know wouldn't have been able to see unless I was there, you know, when it first came out. And many times we actually play versions of songs or even songs that Frank never played other than on right. a record. So there is there's a combination of, of those things. You know, sometimes we'll be playing uh an album version of a song whereas the album version only exists on the record because right. when it was played live he always changed it. So exactly. that's one of the things that is maybe not so well known about Frank's music is that uh there are multiple versions of of dozens and dozens of songs in the catalog that right. that really reflected arrangements um, that suited the particular band that he was using at the time. Mm-hmm. So what that really gives the listening audience a chance to to do is become familiar with multiple versions of songs as if the songs themselves have this uh this life where they you can hear them change and adapt to the environment and uh one of the cool things about the music itself is that the way it's designed is that many of the tunes are constructed to have uh you know a theme that right. is developed and then a wide open space for improvisation, and then you come back to the main theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and some songs are more complicated than that uh, in terms of the, the arrangement. But the basic idea is that you're able to play the same song night after night, but it will never be exactly the same because of the large amount of improv that right. happens in a certain section. So ostensibly giving you, you know, uh, a bonanza of listening possibilities within the entire catalog. So you could hear 20 versions of Inca Roads and not one of them will be exactly the same because of the improv in it. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's, that's a great thing to experience live. Um, what kind of audiences have you been getting? I mean, have you been getting a lot of the younger people um, that uh, you know would be important to keeping Frank's music alive? In the beginning... It was um, really not so much the younger generation because uh, the first people that were most interested in it were the core fans that had been excited about the music for their whole lives, pretty much. So, you know, you could see out in the audience uh, for, uh, (laughs) you know,
know, quite some distance, it was all guys over 65, right. you know, and, and the occasional wife or girlfriend. But um, over the years, it's it's really changed, and we've we've seen uh, a big increase of younger people that are coming to the shows. And anytime I I see younger kids that are up close, up front, you know, I'll make a point to get them involved. Like, I remember on one of the last tours, there was a kid uh, that, uh, I think it was in Idaho. Um, He and his mom, I I found out after, um, drove from Salt Lake City because uh, the show, the venue there, wasn't an all-ages show. So they drove to Idaho, and he was right in the front, and uh, he was wearing a, a... uh, you know, an outfit that that really says, "Hey, check me out! I'm right. a future musician." You know? <laughs> so, I I looked at him, uh, and this was after we played the first song, and uh, I asked him if he was a musician. And he said he was. I asked him what he played. He said drums. I said, "Come on up here!" Wow. And so he came right up on stage, and we did a little improv, and he played drums. So, nice. uh, it's those kind of moments that. You just never know what will happen in a concert, and right. and I always look forward to uh, just seeing what could happen in those uh, instances. And um, you know that's that's a way that uh, introduces the music in a very strong way to you know to a future musician, where right. I'm sure he'll have memories of of that. And if he becomes a professional musician. You know, it, it could all go back to that particular moment. You know, exactly, and that makes everything worth it. Um, is that kind of like what sort of these master classes you're doing? Because I know with this tour coming up, you're doing the Dweezilla master class that you know bands can buy um, for the guitars. Yeah, one of the things that um, I have done uh, in the last four years is I have a music school called Dweezilla, and it's um, been a project that sort of uh, changes as as each year goes by in terms of what we focus on teaching. Right. And the curriculum for this year became all guitar. In the past, it was members of the band teaching, so you would have gotten drum lessons, bass lessons, saxophone lessons, percussion, right. all kinds of different stuff. Um, but this year, I decided to change it to make it only a guitar course, and I've brought in different instructors, you know, uh, players that I have learned from myself and who I know have great things to offer, and it's the most comprehensive guitar course for modern guitar technique that I've seen anywhere. So it's a great combination. There's five different guys uh, that I'm bringing in, um, Oz Noy, Tom Quayle, Chris Buono, Daryl Gable, and David Walliman. They're all great teachers mm-hmm. uh, who have many different things to offer. And um, so what I wanted to do besides just that one version of the camp was to be able to create an opportunity for people that are not able to go to the camp but want to uh, participate in some version of a guitar curriculum. So um, I'll be teaching uh, an hour to 90 minutes of stuff before the shows. Right. Um, and it's really open to all ages and all skill levels. Um, but um, it's something I enjoy doing because ultimately – it doesn't matter what level skill you are already at. Uh, there are things that can open up doors to creativity that right. make it more fun and exciting. And I experience that all the time when I seek to try to improve, you know, in before each tour. So uh, it's just something that uh, seemed like a fun thing to do. And eventually, I'd like to be able to do some touring of my own music and possibly do a similar kind of um, Dweezilla Music School in each city, you know, do right. have multiple um, guitar instructors, uh, do some daytime stuff, and then we do a show in the evening. 
That, yeah, that'd be very cool. So I, I was just going to ask you do, you, do you get a chance to work on your own music and, and, and write a lot? It's been a while since I've had an opportunity to really do that, and that comes down to, you know, the amount of time it takes to keep Zappa Plays Zappa up and running, but also right. finding the balance of being able to spend time with my kids when I'm, you know, in town. So uh, it, it's a challenge to to prioritize my own music, but right. uh, as of recent times, uh, I, I've um, I'm just about to finish this one piece of music that is uh, going to be released in a few weeks here that is called Dinosaur, and it's uh, an instrumental tune that has um, a lot of different ideas going on, and right. it's kind of like a little mini audio movie. It's also, I guess it's very similar to the record I've been working on for a long time, which is called What the Hell Was I Thinking, it's a, which is a uh, continuous piece of music that is uh, would last the entire length of a uh, CD. Um, so the, this particular tune, Dinosaur, also has all the instructors that are at Dweezilla playing on it. So it's a way for people to hear uh, all of us collaborating all at once. And you said that's going to be released in the next few weeks? Yeah, I'm going to be putting it up on uh, Spotify and uh, iTunes and all that stuff. And it will probably be under, uh, you know, my name and uh, the name Dweezilla. Cool. It's definitely definitely going to be looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I don't want to take up too much, you know, more of your time. I want to thank you for coming on the show, and uh, you know, we'll see you out on the road. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, I look forward to uh, having anybody who's interested in the music come down and check it out. This year is definitely going to be a um, uh, a fun tour because of the Roxy record, but right. uh, just the overall energy that the band has right now is is very uh very different and and it's you know everybody's firing on all cylinders so nice. it's a it's a good it's a good time cool i'm definitely looking forward to it all right thanks a lot for coming on the show sure thanks all right a big thanks to dweezil zappa again zappa plays zappa september 4th at the carnegie library music hall of homestead our next guest also going to be making an appearance at that facility as well. His name is Brian Beller. Uh, he was just in town to play the Hard Rock Cafe with his uh, power trio, for lack of a better term. Uh, kind of a rock instrumental fusion. Think, honestly, think Sabatriani, think Vi, think a little bit of Zappa. Throw it in with some uh, Larry Carlton and um, Al Miola. Really a very, very cool mix of uh, guitar magistry. Um, the band is the Aristocrats. Uh, they did a show at the Hard Rock Cafe, as I said. But Brian also is doing duty with uh, Joe Satriani, so he will be at the Carnegie Library as well on Joe's Unstoppable Momentum Tour, which hits uh, the, the library on the 29th of September. So uh, could that be coming up before we know it to get a chance to see Joe Satriani, which is always awe-inspiring as well. So... We're going to get into that interview. Let's play a little bit of the Aristocrats first just to give you a little bit of taste, though. Here's a song called Louisville Stomp.
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to the show from the band The Aristocrats. We've got Brian Beller on the line. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I have to admit, your band is a band whose name, uh, for those of you who follow rock music and things like that, seen this, the, the Aristocrats' name popping up more and more frequently. Uh, and then obviously you guys made a big impact on the Billboard charts with the release of your late, latest album, Culture Clash. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how the band got started? Obviously, you've, you've got a past uh, as long as my arm, but you want to talk a little bit about how the band got together? Yeah, well, uh, basically, Marco Miniman and I had to fight some time together. Uh, we participated with Mike Keneally, who was the uh, last live guitarist for Frank Zappa. We played with him, and we kept in touch with playing gigs here and there, and we had done a gig in Russia with Greg Powell, who's a great mm-hmm. guitarist. Absolutely. And uh, and I thought this would be fun to bring to the Anaheim Sam Show in 2011. Mm-hmm. Winter. And so I booked the gig there, and then it turns out that Greg couldn't make it at, on fairly short notice, so then we had to find another guitarist. Well, people on Facebook had been telling me about Guthrie Govan, and I had never heard of or heard of him. And I went and watched a video of his, and I was just like, holy God. So Marco and I reached out to him. He said, hey, you know, you want to be a big with us? Because, you know, Guthrie lives in London, but we figured he would be at the NAMM show anyway. Yeah. And it turned out that he knew who we were. And so that worked out okay. And then we got together with this one gig where we just did, we all have solo albums out. So we each picked two songs from our back catalog. Okay. We did one show at the Anaheim, at the thing called the Anaheim Bass Bash. Uh, and uh, we could tell from the very first, we only rehearsed once, we could tell right away that the special was going on when we played together. And then at the show, people just went nuts. They literally just demanded that we become a band, like, where on the spot. So, only three months later, we made a record, and the next thing you know, we were touring, and we spent about, you know, on and off, 18 months on the road together. And, yeah. uh, and all that experience kind of really set into, you know, making this new album, Culture Clubs. Now, do you, um, when you did that first gig, did you guys have a lot of time to rehearse for that? Or, I mean, is it just, you know, for those... One, one two-hour rehearsal, that was it. One, two-hour, okay. So you guys just gelled. Uh, I mean, let me ask you this as musicians, is there a lot of like nonverbal cues that you give each other to know, you know, obviously as talented as the three musicians you are, it would be probably very easy for you to just all kind of go out and do this freeform soloing thing and step all over each other. How do you, you know, even in the context of your songwriting, how do you keep it so it doesn't end up as just noise, you know? Well, I mean, there are forms of these songs to be even though we landed on the contemporary jazz charts, which you all thought that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, we're a rock fusion band. So, you know, rock implies that the songs will have some kind of through post form, as opposed to just like, you know, a head and then eat and some dwelling and then another head. Right. So, you know, there's some structure to it, but we do our best to, you know, in the spirit of Frank Zappa, for lack of a better record, to push the structure of the song, mm-hmm. have fun with the structure of the song, really play with them a little bit. And there's a lot of nonverbal communication that goes along with making that work. Uh, you know, we have a good time on stage and give each other a lot of looks. You know, strike yeah. the light, but at the same time, you know, execute. Yeah, I think of you know, in a situation like sometimes the G3, the jam at the end. I remember specifically watching one with Satch Fi and Ingbe Malmsteen. And it was kind of like maybe Ingbe wasn't getting the uh, the cues when not to play sometimes, and you know, it can you guys can get kind of in each other's way. Um, so that was, you know, as a non-accomplished musician, I was always curious about. Um, when you write these songs, I mean, like for the new album, uh, do you guys just kind of get in a room and let the tapes roll? Or do you sit down and kind of chart out the structures of the songs first? Well, actually what we do is, since we're all writers and we all contribute equally to the album, you know, each person contributes three songs. We each write our songs in isolation. We can just make a demo. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I can program stuff, just hack out the guitar, mm-hmm. and Guthrie uh, is a great bass player, program stuff, so Marco can play everything. Okay. So we were able to generate the vision for our song ourselves, then we sent it to the other guys, then we get together in a room, in the same room, the studio, not file swapping, sitting in our, you know, remote locations. We get together, in this case, we got together in a studio in Nashville, where I live, and we track the album in a room. Okay, so you guys all kind of speak each other's language, so to speak, you know, to a degree, so yeah. you can communicate. Yeah, and, you know, and everybody, when you're, we'll say we're playing on a country song, so that country's the producer, we're playing on a Marco song, Marco's the producer. Okay. Uh, same with one of mine. So we have a, it's a functioning democracy. 
That, that sounds like a good way to do it. Um, you mentioned Nashville. Um, is is that kind of are the other guys from Nashville or just yourself? No, Pastor uh, lives in outside London in Chelmsford. Uh, okay. Uh, in Essex. And okay. Marco is originally from Germany, but he lives in Southern California. So, okay. and neither is so ever home for very much anyway. We're always traveling. You're on the road anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Makes so that's part of the origin of the, uh, of the part of the joke of the title is that, you know, I'm American, Captain British, Marco, German. So. Uh, wait, insert joke here. Yeah, yeah there's a million. Say a, a, a German and an Englishman and an American going to a bar kind of jokes, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. And when when you do these songs live, I mean, do you have kind of spots in there that you guys kind of can can go off on tangents? Or is that something you work on in advance, or or do you try to yeah, stay well, tr- true to the recordings? Well, it's always a balance. You know, we want to honor the songs, and at the same time, you know, we want to have fun. So mm. you know, talking about it kind of. Uh, devalues it a bit. Sure. But I would just say that anyone who comes to one of our shows is going to, you know, do something that they didn't expect. If they're just expecting to hear, to hear us maybe a album rendition, you know, there's always going to be a little extra sauce on the song. Sure. You know I mean? Now, I'd be remiss not to talk about your background uh, prior to, you know, the band. Um, you spent a great deal of time w- with one of my favorites and Steve Vai. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what you learned from, you know, the, obviously the protege of Frank Zappa? Well, you know, playing with Steve is really an exercise in, 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 in consistency and execution. Steve mm-hmm. really wants you to be able to deliver precisely what you want in a very precise way so that he can kind of use that as a foundation to do all the crazy things he does. And uh, so, you know, two hours plus, like two and a half hour show that we used to do. And you learn a lot about your own playing. You, know, you push your technical abilities to the limit. You rehearse a lot. These are all the things that Frank used to do at his band. So Steve is carrying on that tradition in some ways. So, so, yeah, I learned a lot about, I learned a lot about just having to execute under different five positions, very difficult material, and trying to keep it consistent with my thing. Sure. Um, are, if Mike, correct, you're going to be touring with Joe Satriani later this fall? Yes, both Marco and I will be touring with Joe Satriani immediately after the Eurus Press tour, though. Okay, so we'll see you back in Pittsburgh in September then, I imagine. Well, That's correct. Awesome. Right. Awesome. So we're going to get a taste of... Uh... Now, is, is for, Sa- for Satch, is this a whole new band for him? I, I noticed like uh, like Jeff Campitelli had been playing drums with him for seemed like ever. Is this a whole new lineup for him live? Yeah, well, Mike Keneally was in the previous band playing keyboards, and in this iteration of the band, he's playing keyboards and guitar. Okay. So it's Mike Keneally on keyboards and guitar, and then Mark and I on bass and drums. Uh, so, you know, it really does sound like a new band in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, it seemed like for a while, I know he had to was Gavin, I believe, playing guitar, and, and um, uh, Bizonette, if I'm not mistaken, right, on bass. Right. Yeah, it seemed like he had kind of... Now, as far as your bass playing... Um, you know, obviously, there's there's some. You know, when I listen to your music, I think of Stu Ham, for example. Were there particular influences on on you as a bass player? Well, sure. I mean, you know, I, I my influences were were rootsier than say a guy like Stu Ham. You know, I I, I, I grew up on John Paul Jones. Okay. Uh, and uh, you know, Lee, mm-hmm. uh, Jocko, story. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I would say, you know, Tim Comerford of Rage Against the Machine is a big influence on me. Uh, and then also, you know, a, a big player named Scott Tunis, who played with Frank Zappa throughout the 80s. Just the way that he thinks about rock music is something that really, the way that he likes to reharmonize things. Okay. Uh, so that's an influence on me as well. From a playing perspective, but, you know, John Paul Jones is really the beginning of it all. Yeah, I think for a lot of people. Now, are you, as far as your live rig, um, what are you using for the aristocrats? Well, I, I use a Galleon Kruger rig, uh, you know, huge property head and a, uh, another power amp and a couple of 412 cabinets. That seems to be working well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use Mike Wolk on the bases. I have a modern 5, which is active, and I have a PJ5, which is passive. The active one's very bright sound, and the passive one's darker sound. Mm-hmm. I have a gigantic pedalboard that it would take 10 minutes just to explain the whole thing, so I'll spare you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, one other one other question, kind of a non-aristocrats, but uh, your experience with Death Clock, um, how, how did you get involved with those guys? 
Death Clock is something that happened because of Brendan Small, who is the uh, creator of the show and the guy who writes all the music for the show. Strange thing enough, he was a Mike Haley fan from very early on. Okay. He followed Mike and I when we were back in Jesus Apple fan back in the early 90s when he was a Berkeley College music student. So when Death Clock became a hit television show, which is what it is, mm-hmm. and the big band put out a real record that was popular and it was time to bring that band on tour, Brendan called Mike and I uh, to be in the band, which for Mike was kind of funny because he never really got into metal, but of course Mike Haley could do anything, so he yeah. did it. I, on the other hand, is a huge metal fan that loves the Metallica, the Slayer, and, you know, all the these brass metal stuff. So uh, it was really fun for me to actually get the opportunity to be in a quote-unquote real metal band. Real metal, yeah. Great. And, and you also, at one point, you played with um, James LeBray from Dream Theater, correct? Yeah, the James LeBray stuff was just uh, remote recording. Uh, okay. I did three records for him. Uh, okay. He sent me the tracks, and then I just would play bass and send them back to him, and there you have it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, being a dream theater, a lot of people know what James and Bree's up to, and there's some people who found their way to me just through that. Yeah. Now, like, when you, when you play with James, for example, do you, you know, intentionally do things different than John May Young did, or, or do you try to incorporate some of what he did into that, or, or were you given any direction as far as that? No, and to be perfectly honest, I really don't even know what John Young Okay. Uh, because I don't have any dream theater out, so I'm afraid to admit. Uh, so and it's not that I don't appreciate what they do, I just never have any other options. Sure. So uh, I just kind of looked at it like, okay, well, you want me to play bass on this record? I'll do what I do, and hopefully he'll like it. Right, so you just kind of, you're, you're Brian instead of trying to be John. That's, that's a great, great way to do it, actually. Um, so the band, I mean, the Aristocrats, obviously, the, the new album is out. You're going to be in Pittsburgh uh, tomorrow night on the, what is it, the 6th of August doing a show at the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, you guys have, you're just going to be hitting the road from now until the end of the year pretty much with the record, or other than your break with Satriani, or, or do you guys just kind of tour when schedules work? Yeah, uh, the uh, the way it's going to work is that the Aristocrats are going to be going all the way to the end of August. Okay. The, uh, and immediately we're going to go to Joe Satriani, uh, right after that for America for two months. So basically I don't get home until the end of October. And then, uh, that's it for this year. But there's lots of plans for 2014 All right, a big thanks to Brian Beller, uh, with the Aristocrats. Also available, uh, you can check him out with Joe Satriani on the 29th of September, as I mentioned earlier. So, plenty of chances to catch his amazing work. Uh, now we're going to change directions a little bit. We're going to turn to an artist who uh, found out about, oh, it's been months ago. I really enjoyed his playing. I, I listen to the CD and I hear so many different things come into his playing style uh, that I wanted to give you guys a chance to listen to it. His name's Patrick DeCoste. Uh, his website is Patrick D E C O S T E dot com. Uh, Massachusetts boy, but we won't hold that against him. As uh, a track he did called Generation Try, and then we're going to talk to Patrick about his style.
segment of the show. We have Patrick Ducoste on the line. How you doing, man? Good. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm stoked to do this. Yeah, it's great. We've had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of legendary and historical guitar players, and I'm glad to, to have your incredible talent added to the mix. Um, I have to admit, one of the first things that caught my attention when I, I caught an email from you was Shea Stadium. Yes, sir. How, how does it how does how does that come to be, and uh, you know what was that experience like playing Chase Stadium? Um, I mean, uh, obviously it was awesome. You know, um, the opportunity to play in front of over fifty thousand people is not something that many people get to um, get to do. Um, it's the the start of it isn't really all that glamorous. Um, I just went on the Mets website and saw what it took to play the national anthem and. You know, 99 out of the 100 sites that I go to say, you know, if you want to sing, send us an acapella version of mm-hmm. the national anthem. Um, but knowing that I can't sing and, um, you know, I clearly would have no shot doing that, I sent my instrumental version in and, um, you know, the guy gave me a call and we worked on a few dates, got one that worked and uh, made it happen. So it was definitely wild, wild experience. And for those that didn't see it, I mean, can you give us a, was it more of a traditional version? Did you go Hendrix on it? Yeah, no, I definitely, um, I went traditional. I kind of have my own version. Uh, a lot of people expect the Hendrix stuff, uh, especially after 9-11. Uh, a lot of places want it to be really conservative. conservative. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to take too many liberties with it. Um, you know, there's some variations of the melody a little bit, but for the most part it's pretty um, straightforward, a lot of chord melodies. Uh, no distortion at all, no whammy bar dies, nothing crazy. Now, I was thinking back, as you were saying, not the Hendrix version, too. I don't know if you would remember Steve Vai's version he did way back in, like... Oh, yeah, the, Rock and Jock, right? Yeah, the Rock and yeah. Jock. I don't remember a damn thing about the game. <laughs> I remember Steve Vai with those sweet green cowboy boots playing a wicked version of that. Yeah, I think Eric Johnson did it the, a year later or a year earlier, somewhere around there, too, for the Rock and Jock. Yeah, which I can imagine. I didn't see that, but I can't imagine it being quite the same. Um, let me ask you this, Shea Stadium. You're from Boston. How How is that? I, it, I mean, it was awesome. You know, it, it's not like they went around saying, hey, this guy's from Boston. <laughs> Anything yeah, like say, that. Did, did you get it, like, in your introduction, did they say, from Boston, Massachusetts? No, no. We, I, I don't think that was an option. Um, yeah. It definitely wasn't something that I was thinking of doing. Uh, it, I mean, it's an opportunity, and you kind of, you know, I like to joke around a lot, but, um, you know, obviously music is something I take pretty seriously, so I didn't kind of want to, you know, put it out there that I was from Boston or whatever. It, it, it's not about me, you know, and yeah. um, you kind of just, you, you play to the situation, and it was just a great opportunity, and, and you don't want to, like, push anyone's buttons or do anything. I mean, the goal is to get to do it and, and to, you know, get invited back. So, yeah. um you know, the situation was so overwhelming, too, that, um, you know, I definitely wasn't, I, I was so focused on that, I wasn't really, um, yeah. you know, it wasn't a Boston, New York thing or anything like that, and it's the Mets, it's not the Yankees, so. Yeah, that's just probably why, I, I noticed, I don't, I don't know if you follow baseball, but just watching Neil Diamond the other night, and I'm thinking, these people in New York realized that this was a Boston thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I'm just yeah, you know, that, that was an interesting to see. You know, it's not easy. Now, when you play that, I mean, um, not to harp on the national anthem, but, like, I know in a lot of, you know, football stadiums and things like that, there's a tremendous amount of echo. Yes. Uh, um, did you have any ear monitors or something to kind of help you with that, or, or how do you, you know, handle that? It, it's funny how it works because we got a sound check, or I got a sound check, um, and it was literally like you turn the guitar on and he goes, can you hear it? Great. That's it. And then, you know, the union guys take you, you know, the pedal board yeah. up and they take it off the field and everything. Um, but right when I did it, I really only had about three to five seconds of a sound check. Okay. And I noticed right away that there was that echo. Um, and it's it'll really throw you off because if you're sitting out in the center field at a game and someone hits a fly ball, you're going to hear the crack of the bat by the time the guy's, you know, halfway down to first, if not on first. Yeah. So, and that's what you're dealing with. So, um, you know, you can visit the video on YouTube and you'll see that I have my Mesa cabinet and it is like directly in front of my face. And yeah. that was, that's what I used as my monitor was I just had to focus on the amp um, itself and not listen to what was coming out of the stadium or yeah. um, listen to anything else. So that's kind of, you know, I, I figured that out really quick and um, I'm really grateful that I did it that way because I kind of just mimicked that, that setup that we're yeah. going now. 
Yeah, it can really, really, really hose you up if you're listening to, you know, delays and things like that. No. Yeah, yeah, I'll, ne- I'll never go direct in an arena. Um, yeah. If anything, I'll do like a dual uh, microphone and um, DI input, but I yeah. need my amp as my monitor for those type of gigs. Yeah. So for those uh, new to you, um, can you kind of talk about what the, the Patrick DeCoste sound is? I mean, what kind of music you play? Sure. Um, I think I'm... Um, kind of just a, a, a blend of all my influences. I love Eric Johnson. I love you too. Uh, I also love some of the heaviest stuff, Randy Rhodes. Uh, we talked about, you know, Steve I. He's obviously a huge influence. Um, love a lot of acoustic stuff. Like I like Jason Mraz. The new Ed Sheeran came out. I've actually been listening to that a lot. Joe Satriani, all those guys. So I love the melodic rock, um, groove-oriented type mm-hmm. music. Uh, instrumental, um, you know, a lot of Melodies, chord melodies, harmonics, um, a lot of effects. I love delays, I love reverbs, mm. uh, various distortions. I don't really have one set distortion. I like to, dependent on the song, use different types of distortions. So um, I rely heavily on multi-effects units um, mm. to give me the tone that I want. Yeah, so you, ha- you haven't gotten kind of that new retro stomp box effect or used to using more like rack-mounted effects, or do you use... Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm actually endorsed by uh, Digitech, so okay. I I use their multi-effects um, modeling. I use their delay um, and their looper pedals because I'm into looping and stuff as well, yeah. especially for acoustic stuff. So um, I don't like to be boxed into one certain tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is I will find a tone I like, and three weeks later I'll be looking for something else. So yeah. I just you know I don't have the finances to have 700 stomp boxes and 800 amps, you know. Yeah. So that's what yeah. these, you know, modelers allow me to do is is get the various tones that I want, switch from time to time, and save the settings that I have, and um, go back to them if if need be. Yeah, and for anybody out there that's that's kind of new to guitar, I can't recommend enough. I have a Digitech RP unit that's I don't know, ten years old probably, and it's a fantastic. You know, you look back when I started playing guitar and, you know, you were lucky if you had a distortion pedal going into your amp and how dry your sound was. And, and, you know, you would listen to these fantastic records of guys like Steve I and you sounded nothing like that no matter how good you played. Your amp was still, you know, you're trying to play through a Squire 15-watt amp with a, you know, a $50 distortion pedal and it was just not the same. And then you get these Digitex and you've got reverb and flange and wall and everything, you know, for 150 bucks or something, you know. Sure. So it's amazing how far they've come. Yeah, you know. it is It is crazy. And, and I like them too because when you get to a gig and, uh, you know, loading and unloading, you're turning knobs and you're hitting buttons. And by the time you get to the gig, you don't know what you've, you know, what, what yeah. you've accidentally pushed or what have you. And these systems allow you to um, save presets. So whether a knob is turned or not, as long as it's not the volume knob, you're in good shape because it's going to save all your troubles and base settings. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to see. I mean, I know in talking with, like, Phil Collin from Def Leppard that they were using direct box, but somehow he was using uh, Amplitude, I believe it was, mm-hmm. uh, for everything. So he didn't have to worry about his effects. You know, he's not lugging around cabinets and heads yeah. and like that. But then, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you mentioned Eric Johnson, who spends, you know, an eternity in a sound check, you know, because that's what he loves. He loves to sure. be with the, the toy, but I mean, it's, you know, he, he's teased to that level. He can be afforded that much time for a sound check. You get a couple seconds, you know. Yeah. Clank, can you hear it? Let's go. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it might catch up with him, too, to the point where a lot of his, he uses a lot of really vintage, really old pedals, and at a certain point, they may not just work anymore. And if he gets to a point where he's so reliant on this one pedal, he's going to be um, pretty limited um, with his resources to be able to get that. So, yeah. um, you, you know, obviously, if anyone will figure out a tone to complement that, he will. Um, not that he's, you know, stuck to one pedal, but um, the way that technology is moving now, if, if people are, are hip to the modelers, then they're definitely um, in good shape for, you know, what's yeah. to come and wh- wh- where the technology is now. Yeah, it is amazing where this technology has gone. Now, you um, you do some workshops and such with Boston University. you still do that, teach quite a bit? I teach. Um, I'm an instructor in residence at Bentley University. Oh, okay. And I, um, I did do a um, quick little speaking thing at BU regarding um, working full-time and also, you know, 
being like a quasi-professional uh, musician and the balancing act between the two. And I've had some success, um, you know, w- w- with that and speaking and being on panels and um, situations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I teach privately out of my house. I also teach on Skype. So, you know, definitely keeping busy. Yeah, and that's another avenue. I mean, that, that is, you know, you'll see this, and, and it's so exciting because you can see guitarists, you know, uh, you know when I I know when I was younger taking guitar lessons meant you were going to some you know eighteen year old kid's mother's house to take sure. a lesson, you know, and you were lugging your harmony guitar with you. But I mean, you know, now the, the technology is such, you know, that you could sit down with a uh, Alex Skolnick and have a guitar lesson. Yeah. Just, yeah. Wow. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. I took a lesson with Greg Howe, who um, yeah, you know, yeah, people, people may know him um, as a solo act. He's also toured with Michael Jackson, um, Justin Timberlake, and he's you know he he has a resume that is is pretty phenomenal. And he was teaching online, so I got to you know study with him. But five, ten years ago, that wasn't even an option. So yeah. it, is, it is wild where things are now. You know, it's it's a great avenue too. I mean, because you know you're limited. Geographically, plus, I mean, a lot of these musicians who you think, wow, you know, this person's too big to need to give guitar lessons, or not even need to give lessons, but want to give lessons. But I think, in talking to a lot of musicians, I think it's almost inherent that a lot of guys love to teach, you know, because you're you're getting that interaction between your student, and it's taking you to maybe something you didn't think of doing before, you know. And that's it's it's you always get something when you're giving something. You know, sure, and it's it's a wonderful experience. So. Um, where can folks find out about your Skype lessons if they're interested? Uh, they can just go to my website, patrickdecoast.com, and there's a um, lessons link under um, the contact, and um, they can set up with me there, whether they're local near the Boston area or um, really anywhere in the world, as long as they can speak English and they have a good working Internet connection. Uh, we yeah. can definitely make it happen. Yes, and if they've got intimate knowledge of all the modes there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The requirements. No. Yeah, modes are modes are mystery for most of us. Um you um did some time with Hairspray the musical? I did, yeah. I was in the orchestra pit for that for three weeks. How how was that? I mean that that's something that I think a lot of you know musicians don't necessarily think of. We've had a couple uh guests who've been in theater, uh, most notably uh a guitarist who was on the uh uh Rockstar musical. But I mean how is how is that experience doing a more uh, I don't want to say traditional musical because Hairspray is certainly not a traditional musical but how was the experience um it, it was one of those things where I look back on it and it's probably my most proudest achievement um theater gigs are a whole new ball game and um, it actually occurred because the guitar player for the Boston Pops used to play at this theater and he couldn't do it so he called someone and his guy couldn't do it so that's how I ended up he ended up calling me and as hard as I tried to say no, I ended up doing it. Um, but reading, I mean, it's you have to know so much in, in terms of um, reading music, transcribing, transposing on the spot, you know, reading a song in one key, playing it in another, um, some improvisation, but at the same time there are some parts where you need to literally go by the letter of the law, what it says in the book. Um, and it was just, it was unbelievable. Uh, experience, learning experience, and there are a lot of great people, and um, it was, but it was extremely stressful, it was extremely, mm-hmm. um, a lot of work went into it, I got the book, the show started on a Monday night, I think I got the book on a Wednesday, oh, okay. and um, <laughs> yeah, so you, there's not a whole lot of time to prepare once you get the book, and um, it was it was very high stress, high tense, at least for me, and um I mean, I was working through the whole thing too, so it's like, yeah. I mean, to to be, I I live closer to Providence than I do to Boston, so for me it was like I would go to work in Boston, come back towards, um, I actually live next door to where the Patriots play, so I would go towards Sorry. Providence, yeah, Sorry and then I would that, go yeah. all the way out to Cape Cod um, every day for three weeks and do one or t- two shows a day. Um, so if, if I didn't have that, I probably probably would have been a little bit easier. But um, it, it's just a whole new mindset. Um, the, even the environment, like your guitar acts different because of the air conditioning and the venue, and you don't need a whole lot of reverb because it's provided by the venue. Yeah. Um, 
you know, th- there's a lot of intricacies that you don't consider. Um, you don't play really full chords at all because then you're stepping on the bass, the bass's toes or the right. horn section's toes. You don't do a whole lot of, um, you know, muting with percussion because then you're stepping into the drummer's territory. So there's a lot of single note, um, two note type chords that you're playing and it's, it's, um, it's a really neat experience, but it, it was definitely, um, you know, it was very stressful at the time, and oh, yeah. um, not for the faint of heart. I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't drop a few pounds on the uh, on the experience. So yeah, and what there's probably what twenty twenty five songs in that particular show. Yeah, it was that. three three hours of music. Yeah, so, uh, you know, for those not familiar with the musical, that's a you know pretty musically intense. Um, now, did you have uh, you know kind of like a formal education musically to to learn how to do this stuff, or are you just Quick study. Um, you know, I don't really know how to answer that. I, I did have some formal training. Um, being from Boston, I was able to go to Berkeley in the summer okay. uh, when I was in high school. So they have a five-week program that um, is pretty intensive, but it's only for five weeks. So um, I actually did two summers there, and that was really my formal training, aside from you know some independent instruction here and there. But um, a lot of it was just taking concepts and principles that you're learning and just really, you know, um, you know, trying really hard to, to get all that information in and, and use it on your own. So um, I did start to take lessons again once I got the Here's Break gig just to kind of fine-tune my chops and help with reading and stuff. But a lot of it is, you know, on your own. Sure. Um, I, I have to ask about the guitar in your um, your Facebook profile. It's a... Uh, the so music man um, looks very similar to what Eddie Van Halen played. Um, what, what exactly is that guitar? It, it's an uh, Ernie Ball Music Man Axis Super Sport. Okay. And um, I'm endorsed by Ernie Ball. I've been endorsed for, geez, at this point, almost 10 years. Great. And I actually haven't touched another guitar <laughs> since I've you know, started playing Music Man. I do have a JP6, the John Petrucci uh, left-handed model. Sure. But, um, yeah, the Super Sport is my... My main axe. Now, let me ask the bridge on the guitar. It, what, what is that? You know, I'm ex- you're used to seeing the uh, you know Floyd Rose in those type yeah, of guitars. Um, yeah, it's their own whammy system. Okay. Um, it's not a Floyd Rose. It's just kind of a standard whammy. It actually goes in by magnet. Um, I know some Ibanezes you twirl in, and they're almost like a squirrel in. Um, yeah. And this one is just you just pop it in, and there's a magnet at the bottom that'll okay. catch it. Yeah. Is that the same bridge that's on the JP model? No, the JP model has a different bridge. Um, I'm not too techy to know the difference between the two. Yeah, I had John ex- John explain that bridge to me at one point, and it was way over my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be like another just more stuff that I'd have to like dive into to, to learn, and mm-hmm. I just kind of leave it up to them. I play it if it sounds good, great. If it feels good, if yeah. it's lightweight, you know. I'm good to go. I'm not too techy in that in that regard. Yeah, that's a beautiful guitar. Um, you're going to be doing some shows coming up. Uh, you know, obviously primarily up in the Northeast. Um, I see you're playing the Mohegan Sun. Do you want to talk about yeah. what what that event is? Yeah, that's cool. I um, I started doing the anthem there after Shea. I just kind of snowballed the Shea gig into a few other um, arenas around town. So I started playing the national anthem at Mohegan Sun. It's actually the WNBA team. Okay. Connecticut Sun play there and he just um, said you know a lot of our anthems now he doesn't handle but he does handle halftime shows so I went out and I did a halftime show last year and they're having me back this year to do it so which is um, really cool because now I get to play arenas and play original music you know as opposed to um, and it's not a minute and 20 seconds like national anthem gigs so it's, it's a really cool experience Awesome, awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Again, that Patrick DeCost, and that's with an E, or DeCost, I'm sorry, with an E on the end, uh, dot com. You've got all your information and your links and stuff like that. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, man. I appreciate yeah, it. No, I thank you. I appreciate, you know, um, I'm definitely a fan of the podcast, and I'm honored to be on it. So I appreciate uh, your time, and forgive me a call. No, no problem at all. All right, I want to thank Patrick DeCost for joining us on the show. Also, Brian Beller of Aristocrats and Joe Cetriani's band, and also... Uh, certainly Dweezil Zappa. Again, Dweezil in town on the 4th of September. Brian on the town on the 29th of September. So a chance to see both those guys. Uh, really cool. Hope you uh, all enjoyed. Kind of went in some artistic rock direction this time around. Uh, for those new to the show, we do a blend of 
kind of hard rock, heavy metal, uh, dip into some blues once in a while. So uh, if you like this kind of material, this is this is pretty representative of the kind of stuff that goes on on Iron City Rocks. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. You can find all the episodes, concert photos, uh, reviews of some CDs and DVDs, etc. So I hope you'll find that to be an entertaining website. Also, facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks and twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Also invite you to check out our sister podcast, Heavy Metal Book Club, which is heavymetalbookclub.com. Uh, both those shows are on iTunes as well. Heavy Metal Book Club, we look at all those great rock and roll reads. Uh, certainly not Oprah's Book Club. Uh, we just talked to Ian Christie, uh, who is the owner and founder of Bazillion Points Publishing, which does a lot of metal and hardcore books. So if you're into that kind of stuff, check that out. I'll look at that up on Facebook as well. So you can hit us up for either show at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. We appreciate any and all feedback, or if you're interested in being on the show or the Heavy Metal Book Club, please let us know. Also, check out castironring.com, uh, the brotherhood of podcasters that we have established uh, features many, many great rock, metal, music-related podcasts. So that's castironring.com. Until next time, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you.